Today we have Dr. Victor Yim. Hey, Victor. Hey, Kaiwai. Thanks for having me. That's all good. It feels it feels weird. Does it feel weird that you're actually now a doctor now after all these years? And you titled. <laughs> I look at it. It's like it's great, but then thinking back, the whole process is like it was a lot of blood, sweat, tears that led up to it, and it's like a whole gradual, drawn-out process that doesn't actually feel as grand as it seems. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why we kind of brought you in today to kind of talk about your process of becoming a doctor. So, um. When we mean doctor, we mean Victor is a doctor, as a PhD doctor, not a medical doctor, and he did uh, medchem, so medicinal chemistry, and um, we did get requests from last season to kind of have a person that was in the chemistry, I guess, department, and we thought um, with Victor be a good option for him because he's done, he's he's collected he's collected them all. Let's 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 put it that way. He's got his he's got his PhD, and now he's um left university and now working for a company called Snowbury, but we can kind of talk about that as we kind of continue with this podcast. But with our with all our guests, the first question we kind of ask is, how did you get into science? Was it in high school? Was it in primary? Was it your parents? Was it like a cultural thing? We've had a whole bunch of people who are like, I did it because I was good. And that is, there's no reason. And that's not that's not like a bad reason if you're good at it then that can be your reason as well yeah so i wouldn't say i was ever really that good at it um, growing up but it was definitely looking into the future my parents i guess and culture in terms of that what gives the most certainty uh and supposedly science jobs will give me some sort of job security which as you see now which is totally not the case uh and the whole thing about certainty is that the deeper you get into science the less certain things are so but that was the way it got me into it. Yeah, I think um, I, I think we I can speak as well. Um, I think parents, kind of in that generation, especially in this Asian community, they kind of group science and like medicine, law, engineering jobs that actually can. There are jobs after you finish your graduate, and they think that science kind of is grouped into that area where once you've got your science degree. Like you just get handed a job, but unfortunately, um, not all sciences are kind of like that. And um, even even we've had some people who are like, um, we didn't, our parents didn't want us to do a law degree because they see it as an arts degree. So I fully understand what you mean, and um, I think that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about this as well, because there, like you said, there's a whole lot of uncertainty in science, especially when you move up and becoming research researchers. You're working on grants and stuff, so. Um, it's good that um, you continued it, and I mean, it seems like you enjoyed it and you were quite good at it, even though you didn't know if you were that, um, if you did quite well. So, did you do science in like intermediate or high school, or did you kind of just go straight into university with very minimum science knowledge? Uh, so, I definitely did science in high school. So, I went to the infamous Auckland Grammar, uh, so, and also did the infamous Asian Five uh, for one year. Uh, did also go through the thought of, oh, med looks like something for me. Um, but after my rebellious teen self was like, no, I'm going to be different. So after sixth form of doing Asian Five, I'm like, no. And I dropped physics for French, which in hindsight, which is not much different or deviate, deviated from the usual five anyway. But hey, that was me justifying it as a 17-year-old. Um, yeah, so 
Cambridge was the thing that I that I went through, which was I don't know if you guys are familiar that Cambridge exams um was more like there was no like internals and stuff throughout the year, and so we just bit um bunched everything towards the end of the year, and yeah, that's how it was for me and um at school. Yeah, it's Cambridge is a lot more, I guess more representative of what university kind of is because you don't have internals like NCA. Um, it's good that, I mean, you guys had the option to do Cambridge. I mean, I, I went to a school in Hamilton that we tried to convince our teachers to give us Cambridge and they were just like, it's too much effort. You guys were just to do NCA. If, if you're in uni now and you think those um, 30-70 split uh, cross-vector exam ratios are bad, dude, Cambridge is 0-100. It is all in on that exam. Yeah. You could bomb every test or... Um, every you know fake mock test they give you during the year just to produce something on your report you could bomb all of that but then walk out at the end of the year with an a star <laughs> top of like top of new zealand grade in it or something so well i mean it, it it was insane like you would just people would just kind of binge you would just binge uh study towards the end and which i guess is a lot more representative of what most people do in uni anyway yeah, so you're getting yourself prepared for what university life is like, unlike us who constantly had internals and then a couple of like I, I had I had university entrance before my exams in year thirteen, so I was ready to go. Like I didn't study much for my exams because I already I already got accepted into university. So um, yeah, it's slightly different. I mean, pros and cons to both, but. I mean, we all made it to university. We made it out alive. <laughs> I think that's the most important part. Um, so, but why chemistry? Of all the, I mean, we know you didn't do physics because you dropped it when you're in seventh form. But why did you choose chemistry over biology and physics? Um, so biology was actually something I was better at at school. But I definitely know that I liked chemistry more. Uh, I actually got remembered myself getting excited balancing equations and stuff like that. For um, the stoichiometry and stuff like that, if you guys remember, I don't know if you guys want to be reminded of that, but <laughs> but that was what I was like trying to repress it. <laughs> well, it's it's coming back at you. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, yeah, it's just like talking to people saying what I did as like I did chemistry at uni, and a lot of people would be like, oh, I found it really hard at school, or I failed chem, and I'm thinking. Okay, thanks for telling me that. <laughs> um, yeah, everyone finds something hard and everyone finds something good. And it wasn't something that I was particularly as good as I was for bio, but definitely something I really enjoyed. And I'm glad I felt that because that's what made me choose um, medicinal chemistry at uni. Um, so the reason why I chose medicinal chemistry instead of normal chemistry is because most of the degree was laid out like I think 70% or more of the course was laid out so I was lazy I was, went for something that required less choosing but I know that chemistry this medicinal chemistry covered a wide range of things of medicinal stuff bio and chem and that was something that I was those are the things that I'm quite interested in so that was why I chose medicinal chemistry so what's the main difference between the two so like you said is medicinal chemistry just more you get the biology, bio, bio, biological side as well, and chemistry is just straight chemistry. Uh, well, chemistry, there's, so if you think of chemistry as a whole, there's like two parts of it. There's the organic side, and then there's the inorganic side. 
and on the side there's well not really on the side but also there's analytical so there's like different branches of chemistry whereas medchem focused more on the organic side of things and what's related to that is the medicinal so for lorenzo you did pharmacology so there were some pharmacology papers as well and the med side parts um so there were a few things that i could choose if i wanted to to do a bit more bio and stuff like that um or different types of chemistry but at the end of the day looking back it's not too different from let's say like a bio and a chemistry major but it definitely appealed to me as i said it just most of the courses were chosen already so i was like okay let's thought about it and just do whatever i mean i i was the opposite i liked having the options but I think it's a lot easier when it's all set out for you, right? Because once you try like putting into a timetable, they're like, you have like 16 different clashes and you're like, well, this this goes out the window now when I wanted all these options and none of them work. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, didn't have to think about it. So it just, it's all set out. Um, and, but then looking back, uh, it did kind of, in a way, kind of narrowed me a bit towards like what type of chemistry I could, pursue in terms of postgrad. Um, so at the time I knew I liked chemistry, but I wasn't sure what it meant for a job or whatever, but I followed it because it was chem and then there's a bio, which I was pretty good at high school. Um, and the more I went into my undergrad, the more I realized you can't get a job with a bachelor of science, at least not something um, that I want that had like more research base. Um, so I knew that research was something that I'm more inclined to, mainly because when I used to procrastinate for exams or something, I'd be on like Wikipedia and then there'll be like one small subject, more topic, and then I was like, I wanted to find out more and I was just go really deep into a deep rabbit hole. 30 other tabs of Wikipedia later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so by the sounds of things, you already knew you were gonna do your honors, right? So, cause you did your honors. No, so I, so this is going back to the Cambridge thing. It actually prepared me really badly for uni because of the cramming. So I didn't really have like the whole skills or, or at least prepared me to study ahead of time and left it way too late. So in second year, I actually failed a paper. Um, something I was good at in first year. So biochem was the one I failed and I did really well in first year. So I thought, ah, oh, this is easy. I'll do well in second year. And somehow got like high 40s and was like, oh, okay. And it was a smack in the face like, okay, I, I actually need to work a bit harder. It's just not going to come towards me. Um, and so third year, I mean, it was a bit too late by the end that I couldn't pick up my GPA enough, so I had to do a PGDIP. Um, nothing wrong with PGDIP, uh, but the way I did it and um, in my research group, my supervisor didn't really know what a PGDIP was. Uh, I got taken in because I don't actually know. I need to talk to the supervisor again. <laughs> Just to figure out why but the point was that i got put into a lab and did all the work then honest students probably had to do and still did the extra papers so it was a really hard year for me for pgd um and i did i think the same amount of work but less amount of points because like the thesis part that i wrote would have been worth less points than the honors thesis so how does how does the um how does the PGDIP work in MedChem? Um, it's just PGDIP size, so it's not really um, any different for Chem or MedChem. So, so just eight papers, and then you moved into your master's to do your thesis? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I moved to a master's. So 
the master's year was a bit weird for me, so I did my PhD dip, and then pretty much just like no one in my group did masters or PhD dip, so I was like the weird um extra, and so what they did told me to do for masters just continue on what I did for my PhD dip, which was um synthesizing uh anti cancer peptides, so I just pretty much synthesized more analogs and just got them tested. It wasn't anything new per se. So I'm I'm a little bit confused. So for so you were doing lab work during your PU Dipsai year. Yeah. Cause for myself and Lorenzo, that first sem- that whole year, the only time, yeah, it was just classes for us and Victor might have done the extra that Yeah. Yeah, so I didn't find out until afterwards like, oh, why was it so hard? Oh, now I realize. <laughs> you weren't meant you were, you were meant to be doing lab work in the first in um PG dip year. Yeah. It's good though cuz that's something that most people wouldn't think of doing. Yeah. So it, it was Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I at the time I was just finding it really hard, but also I was also still kind of recovering from like undergrad being not so good. And then there was the research proposal paper in the first semester and I put a lot of effort into it and somehow, uh, not somehow, I, it did reflect that I got an A plus from that. So that was like, okay, so I am probably good at this. I just need to put the work in. And so. Well, also, also because you were doing lab work. I mean, let's not, let's not kid yourself, eight papers and lab work. And um, the lab group that you were in, um, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't know how much you want to talk about it because, um, yeah. Um, cause you were in Margaret Brimble's lab, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm, cause how, how did you even meet Margaret Brimble? And cause like you said, um, Margaret Brimble, like if you know anything about Margaret Brimble, she's a dis- distinguished professor. She is like the queen of like, what do they call her? Like she was nicknamed like the queen of organic chemistry or something. Um, yeah. I mean, many titles she has. Yeah. If she Sorry. were to type out a title, it would be like something from Game of Thrones or something. It's like yeah. or, or something like that. So so how did you meet Margaret and how did you convince her? Because like you said, she takes very clever students. Like, And like you said, that I'm sure a lot of them would have just gone through honours and gone straight to PhD because my sister was also in Brimble's lab and that's kind of her process as well. So yeah, there was a bit of crossover between your sister and I. Like, I, as I, as she was finishing, I just joined the group. Um, so after um, my third year, oh, during my third year undergrad, I applied for summer studentships. But obviously, I just went for it just to see, try my luck. Uh, so most people were saying no to me because my grades weren't good enough. Fair enough, but Margaret said yes so maybe i just emailed them and just went to meet them face face to face and so she's maybe i said something nice or i was presentable in a way um but at the same time they are always looking for people to for hands um and so she at the time she thought i was just another honor student maybe with not so good grades but somehow she thought that i could continue and improve i guess she's right in a way well i mean yeah i mean we've we, we, even when you talk to like other um supervisors like rod dunbar like i distinctly remember in one of his lectures he was like you doing well in these papers 100 percent does not reflect how good you are as a researcher he was like i will take on students with b minus b 
he didn't say anything about C pluses, so in that B range, maybe. <laughs> um, the minimum. Yeah, like anyone in the he's like, I don't care if you're an A plus student. If you're a B, you're if you're a B student, you might also be an amazing researcher. And and I guess that's one thing that Margaret and I guess a lot of these supervisors also do. They see potential in you that you don't know about, and that's why they also talk you on. And I think t- I, I would take that as a compliment. I mean it's it's amazing that she saw that in you and i mean well you did your masters and now you've got your phd as well and um can you talk much about what you did in either of those degrees yeah i can uh, so all my stuff's been published so it's out in the open so i can talk about it um for pg and masters it was uh anti-cancer peptide so most of my stuff were just mimicking what's in natural not naturally occurring so for the cancer peptide was what was um, a protein that was already affects the connection of cells. So that would affect like um, the growth of tumors and the point was to prevent the growth of tumors. And the protein, that protein-protein interaction, there was a loop and then what's the peptide is just mimicking that loop and we just synthesized that and just added um, into, it'll be a, a in vitro test just to see the efficacy and then we send that to biologists and then they will do the testing. And so there's a lot of, that's why there's a lot of collaboration involved for us, for our group, is that we do what we're specialized in and then we send it off to the testing for whoever specialized in. Um, so that was PG Devon Masters. Um, and then PhD, I moved on to different types of peptides. I did um, antimicrobial peptides. So my, me specifically, I was looking at uh, peptides that were um, that were naturally occurring in the soil so that's a rich area where heaps of soil bacteria kind of compete for nutrients and how they compete is by uh, secreting peptides that will kill other kill off competition and those normally have really novel structures so with the 20 amino acids you have your standard 20 amino acids and some others that are kind of well known and well used already but the what's interesting in those soil peptides is that there are even more novel structures that are that will be like a challenge for us to try to synthesize and then by finding those techniques that we can synthesize we can apply it to different types of synthesis and so my project was trying to mimic those structures and also developing synthetic techniques that can mimic those novel structures found in nature so you're essentially making your you you're making naturally derived peptides for use and hopefully in human um human consumption maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I had three separate peptides I looked at. One was for human consumption. One was for plant uh crop protection. Um, and the other, if I remember correctly, oh, it was just mainly looking at a specific technique of that we that the Brimble group developed. And just seeing if we can apply that to um, peptides. Um, yeah, so just for those people thinking about publishing or not, this is related in that two out of three of my peptides were inactive. Um, and there are cases where you, we can publish, I guess it's not really a failure in that I still managed to synthesize the peptide, but in terms of that, there were no um, biological outcome, but we were still able to publish that and say, okay, this type of work um, can lead to somewhere, but not this specific application. 
So hopefully we'll see more of that type of work. And that was something I found as well doing my masters is it was hard to find papers that showed failures. So yeah. a lot of the time you would have you you do something and then go oh it doesn't work, and then yeah. you find another paper trying to explain why your thing doesn't work, and you you can't find it because it turns out nobody likes. Uh, publishing techniques that don't work and i'm like cool so everyone's just gonna go in this <laughs> infinite loop of um uh repeating somebody else's mistakes that happened five ten years ago but i mean like successful techniques even if it doesn't have a completely successful outcome it's kind of like a proof of concept right because my my master's was basically to sum it up was a proof of concept it's to show that oh this can be done it's up to whoever wants to use it to decide how they're going to retrofit it to find what they want to find. Yeah, I think not many people talk about this, right? Like negative results is still results. I think a lot of people don't realize that you only see, like you said, you see the 1% that get published, but the 99% you don't really do. And if it's good science and it's negative results, that's still results. It's things that is publishable and people can learn from it as well. So I think that's one lesson that if you kind of go into research, don't be discouraged if things don't work. I mean, it's I, I had 12 months of negative results. So, I mean, I can attest to it. But once you know that if it's good science and it's good research and it's negative results, um, people can learn from this. Yeah, people people will learn from it. And, um, I mean, I didn't stay, stay around to troubleshoot it. Someone else um, hopefully will kind of carry on my work to kind of do and see if there's any other proteins or techniques that might be positive in a way that it can have a beneficial effect um later on in the future yeah so i think the word negative how it's a negative result somehow people think because it's negative they think it's bad i think maybe that's a philosophical philosophical viewpoint that because it's negative it's bad but no that's not the case and that's what i it took me a while like maybe second year uh, into my phd to realize that these failures, I shouldn't be taking it personally. Um, I somehow it took me ages to learn that I shouldn't take these. Uh, it, these failures, it just means that okay, it's just another step for me to move on and know that I shouldn't need to try this again, and so I can find other ways to try it. Try um, troubleshooting this problem. And I mean, if everything worked out the first time around, we'd have treatment for everything, right? We wouldn't be in the situation where. It takes years for things to be finalized and for it to work if it worked the first time around. Yeah, so I, yeah, and we wouldn't have learned anything. It's like, okay, this worked. So, how did it work? Was it by, it's by luck or I'm just amazing? <laughs> things not working is usually how you find out how it works. Yeah, for sure. How you, you gain any detail of the process is if stuff just doesn't work, you, you're forced to look into it. It's okay, great. But if it just works miraculously, like Panadol, <laughs> you just, you're never going to find out why it works. Apparently, up to this day, we still don't know what Panadol's proper mechanism of action is. So there you go. It just works. <laughs> if, you, if you go to a drug company now and tell them uh, you introduce Panadol to them, um, that thing is probably not going to pass uh, regulation because nobody, the basic, the very basic knowledge of what its mechanism of action is hasn't been defined. It's just we're lucky that it worked back then. And they were yeah. like, dude, it works, take it. <laughs> yeah. Ethics have, have really has really hampered. I'm joking. I'm... <laughs> but um no, I mean, like you said, you've learned um I guess 
some of the you've you had some life lessons during a PhD. Um, but what were the I guess the good things, the positives of doing your masters and your PhD? Because did you want to do your PhD? I mean, let's take a step back. Like we've talked about you going straight from your masters to your PhD, but was there in the back of your mind was PhD an option or you kind of wanted to leave university? Uh, university, I mean, after after undergrad, I know jobs weren't really, at least the jobs that I want weren't really out there. So naturally that pushed me towards postgrad. And then after postgrad, or as in after masters, I did have a few months of at least waiting for the PhD admin and stuff like that. But before, so I, there was that time where I could still pull out in a way. Um, but I guess it's more that I was scared <laughs> of actually going to the big world and potentially get, uh, meeting in all those types of um, rejection from like uh, applying for jobs. As I've seen many diagrams of people showing how many job offers they get after what, like 100 applications, only like one or two, uh, which is normal, very normal, and everyone should be going through that. Unfortunately, that's just how the it's set up as the system, if you want to put it that way. Uh, but yeah, I was afraid of that, so I saw, and I got offered the PhD, and so one, I got offered, and two, I know there's a whole prestige of getting a PhD. I would say probably going into it with the wrong mindset, <laughs> but uh, I did like just from the time I spent in PhD I realized that I, don't, I all that pain at the time when things weren't working and I'm just thinking what's happening and questioning myself and all that and thinking is it worth just getting this title of PhD no it's not uh, but what I got over is the life lessons which I've already alluded to um, that failure mindset in terms of that it's not failure it's just another step for you to go forward and move on and learn from it. Yeah, I think um, Justin said that in his company they call that imperialism or something like being able learning learning through failure and always seeing the future and kind of troubleshooting. So I guess that's another thing that if you want to add to your CV or like course skills that you have in the science degrees, things like that, like learning from your failures and troubleshooting it and finding ways to improve or make an experiment work so I guess that's core cool skills that regardless of where you go in the industry outside of science it's also important to um, have these skills as well okay so you're done with your PhD um, congratulations again um, I mean after your oh well I think we should probably talk about once you have submitted your thesis that's not the end of it there is still your defense which um, I, I, I'm sure a lot of people know about this but do you want to kind of discuss that a little bit as well? Just once you've handed in your thesis, you actually have to defend your thesis? Yeah, so I had it in um, and then the first COVID lockdown happened. So I guess in a way I was like, wow, I got really lucky. I didn't have to try to finish off my thesis during a tumultuous time in the world. Uh, and so I had like a few months before anything happened so i know i could relax at the time i told myself that i shouldn't stress about something that's coming up six months later so i actually got to relax and kind of process what i've done for the past three four years and when i did the defense i felt really good at it uh, about it afterwards but before it what i was thinking is like oh what if i don't answer these questions 
So for people who don't know, the at least for chemistry PhD defense, most of them get most of the time you get two examiner's reports, and they will list out questions, specific questions that they want to ask about uh, your your work, and they generally don't deviate too far from those questions. So you just need to know how to answer those questions. Um, that's not to say you give a robotic answer and hooray. You need to answer it and pretty much just rekindle what you've learned um, throughout your PhD. And their questions are generally from for their own sake, is that they are curious about your work. They want to know why you did this. And so it made me feel good about the, the work that I actually did. Uh, and after a bit of preparation with uh, one of the co-supervisors and just had a Zoom meeting and went through the questions and practice questions, uh, that was the first step of me thinking, okay, this, this is not as bad as I thought. And then during the actual defense, it happened. And then afterwards, like, oh, I was able to talk about my work completely, answer any questions and probably rambled a bit. Uh, that was anything related to those questions. And afterwards, my supervisor said, oh, you did a really good job. I wasn't in the good books towards the end of my PhD. <laughs> so to hear that was like a really... Uh, it was really affirming to me that it was like, okay, uh, I'm, I'm not here because of dumb luck. I actually worked my ass off for it. Uh, and just pretty much appreciate it and acknowledge that, yeah, there's a whole spectrum of people who achieve out of PhD and um, among there. And it felt good to be part of that group and know that I made it there. Yeah, like dumb luck. What, one, one year might be luck. But once you once you've done it for three, four, five years, that's at that point that's not luck anymore. You were definitely there because because you were capable. Um, another, another one question I want to ask though is: Did you were you one of those people who wore a Fitbit in your defense and then did, did plotted like a graph of what your heart rate was <laughs> based on the start time? Like this question was asked, and then this question, and then when it as as the end, your heart rate finally dropped down, or were you just like ah whatever? I'm just gonna <laughs> I, I have other things to worry about. <laughs> Uh, no, but I know that when I get nervous, I get really cold hands and feet. And so I was at home at the time and the place I was living in was really cold. So that didn't help as well. It was in the middle of winter. So just, I was like, am I cold because of this? Or am I nervous or a bit of both? And I was having cold sweats all around, but I definitely know that I was, my voice was shaking. It was really weird. So after they've answered, I've answered all the questions, they did some deliberation where I just sat there for 10, 15 minutes waiting. And I was like, okay, do do do, what do I do? Uh, <laughs> then I just put you in a breakout room and they're like, all right, let's just like fix it there for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Zoom for a while. like. Yeah, it was weird. It's like, okay, they talk about me in the other part of this channel, whatever. And I'm just sitting there waiting. It's like, okay, uh, I guess it'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> but like I said, you... I mean, doing your defense really affirmed that you knew what you're talking about because that's one thing about being a doctor. You are specialized in this area and you can actually talk and discuss it. And um, being passing it is no, it's no small feat. And, I mean, like we said, congratulations. Um, Lorenzo and I will not experience this, um, nor do we want to experience this. It's, it, there's a difference between <laughs> between wanting to and not wanting to. But... um. um 
what did you do after your PhD? So usually people would stay for their postdocs. They kind of, a lot of them, a lot of times might stay in their labs, keep doing some more research, but you moved into industry. So um, I guess, do you want to talk about that process of, and what your thought process was like, if you didn't, if you didn't go, if you didn't actually meet Snowberry, do you think you would have stayed at university and continue your postdoc work? Um, so I would, uh, might be disappointing for some people to hear, but it's a bit of luck and relationship that how I my um, role in Snowberry. So my scholarship group for PhD was the Biocide Toolbox, and those people went to quite a few cosmetic conferences. So that's how they got in touch with Travis, my boss. And Travis was looking for people um, who have done their PhD uh, and just seeing if they want if uh, for a six-month type of project work. And so I was lucky to be one of them uh, alongside another, Alex Lee, you guys might know him. Um, so we were both together at um, Snowberry for a bit and I was just doing work for Snowberry, but I was still with the Peta lab because of the equipment that they have. So analytical equipment like um, Maspec, HPLC, that companies won't really want to um, invest in unless they really need it. So they didn't see the need for that at the time, but the collaboration meant that I could still stay at uni and do work for them. And after the six months was over, um, I guess I impressed Travis, and so he wanted me to stay on permanently. Uh, so now I've kind of moved away from peptides and just into cosmetic chemistry. So for people who don't know what Snowberry is, they do skincare products, um, formulating skincare products, and they are owned by PNG. So that means that they have a lot of backing and we could try different types of projects uh, and not have to worry too much about funding which is something that I'm glad I don't have to battle as much as a postdoc because I've heard that you have to spend let's say you get a grant for six months you spend two or three months actually doing work and then you have to start worrying about writing grants for the next round uh, so I'm lucky that I don't need to do that because knowing my own track record I'll leave things too late and I'll probably be out of a job and just be like trying to write a grant and crying myself to sleep or something <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's that stability, right? I mean, having working on grant to grant is stressful and um, like I'm sure it's very difficult to have these grants and like you said, if you have a six-month grant and then three halfway through you're like, oh crap, I have to wonder if I'm going to get the next grant. So I guess there's, there's pros and cons to both sides and I guess like you said, it's the networking that you did and the people that you know that kind of got your role at um, Snowberry and it sounds like um you're doing great work um because it seems like snowberry's up and coming they i've looked into it they seem like a really cool company and with the whole holistic and natural health that's booming at the moment it seems like you guys have a really solid um market to kind of target so um i wish you guys all the best and um is, is that enough um promotional stuff for snowberry or do we need to do we need to talk more about it <laughs> Uh, I've learned that it's more scientific than it seems. So from my perspective as a more of a pure chemist, uh, I know some people will think peptide chemists are not pure chemists, but regardless, um, that looking at cosmetic stuff is kind of not so sciencey. 
Uh, there is actually science behind it. So, for example, one of the, the what they call the hero ingredient of snowberry is this copper peptide, uh, where the peptide brings in copper into the skin and that activates enzymes responsible for um, collagen and elastin production. And that's how the anti-aging of those products work, is that it makes the skin bouncy again so that it won't leave the fine lines thing, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, so that's like from it's through the scholarship group that I got my position at Snowberry and I guess I took the chance, uh, took the opportunity and managed to get a full-time position out of it. Um, Did you also get a plant a tree? Uh, no, so... <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that what they call KOLs so KOL is this influencers but they call it KOL which stands for key opinion leaders or something yeah there's a bit of um, jargon that's um, they use from PNG and stuff and it's a bit weird and I'm still trying to get my head around them <laughs> yeah so like you're like you said KOL is just people that kind of help promote your brand and stuff and I know that in Snowberry you're they're all very about bringing returning it back to the earth and you're allowed to you are i don't know if you're asked or you you're recommended to plant a tree in in snowberry as well lorenzo so yeah yeah because um the gardens that where all the instagram worthy stuff happens is kind of far away so you have to travel a bit so their way is like oh you have to offset your carbon by planting a tree then yeah it's a feel-good story uh that's a nice little it is so I, no, I th- I think it's I think it's amazing, but I I wanted to know if you had the opportunity to plant a well, tree. I'm not a KOL, so I won't haven't got that opportunity yet. Maybe one day. I don't know if I want to branch out to that side, but if uh, you know, maybe this is my first step. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, fingers crossed. I mean, it, like I said, doing bringing it back, like bringing it back to the earth and stuff. I think that's very important in today's climate. Um, but I think. We're almost done with this podcast because we've talked about how you kind of got into science, your PhD um, experience and all the university stuff and the trials and tribulations. And usually the last question we are, we kind of ask our guests, even though you've already given us a lot of advice um, already, is kind of if you could go back and talk to 18-year-old Victor, this cramming 17-year-old dude doing Cambridge, um, or anyone kind of in... I guess in a similar situation where um, they've actually kind of realized that getting a bachelor's degree may not, may or may not get you a job. Like what advice would you kind of give to yourself and others in this situation? I would say go out there and be comfortable with rejection. Uh, Rejection doesn't mean it's not something you should take personally. It just means that the company, the timing is bad pretty much. Uh, and rejections happens all the time, especially for people looking at jobs. Uh, uh, it's normal, and obviously people don't really talk about it. They talk about that 1% that happens, and that's when they get the job. Um, so that, that would be true for like my Bachelor of Science self, that after the bachelor's, I should, st- I should have still looked outside of uni and see what was out there for me. Uh, it might not have been work straight away it might have been a gap year or just give myself time instead of just study 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 and then um, give yourself time to grow and look at sorry just one last thing is that passion look at passions that outside of 
uh, the study pathway. So if you have a sport or whatever culture, whatever hobby, uh, please look into that as well. That's always like a good way to balance your mentality if you're doing any research. Uh, don't just give your whole self to research. It won't be good for you in the long run. You need to be a whole person and a whole person will probably research better than someone who is focused too much on research, if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. It's all about, yeah, you have to have, I guess, like where you learn about holder, like the well-being, everything has to be there. It's not just your mental side, your physical side. Everything has to be in sync for you to kind of be the best person you can be at that time of, um, of where you are. Uh, yeah. Delane, did you, Lorenzo, did you have any final words? No, that's it. I think everything that Victor said has really, really resonates. I feel with what a lot of science graduates should, should know about, especially, um, accepting that some, that a lot of the time it's just timing. The timing isn't right. Uh, you could be qualified for something. You could be the best person for it, but one circumstance might change that. And it's not the end of the world. You can still definitely find something. Um, yeah, I mean, don't be afraid to just keep trying and keep exploring your options, which is what Victor said. Yeah. But again, thank you so much, Victor, for um, talking about your journey. I know um, having to revisit your PhD is, isn't easy for anyone. <laughs> uh, I've, I've gone past that, and I'm happy to share it if I've done so. Yeah. And like I said, um, um, if you're happy, we'll share your... Um, LinkedIn, so if there's anyone that wants to talk to you, we've actually had a couple of people um, approach our guests, um, so follow them, on, connect them on LinkedIn, give them a message, be like, oh, I heard your podcast, interested in what you do and what Snowberry does um, in your career, and um, I'm sure Victor will be more than happy to talk to you about these things, and outside of us recording him at um, 8 o'clock at night um, <laughs> on, his, on, on a Google Meetups call, but again, thank you so much, Victor, for... Um, coming on to this um thank you for your pills of wisdom and um we wish you the best of luck and um if there are any free samples more than happy to give it a try go to farmers you'll probably get a few but yeah thanks for having me i really enjoyed this cool thanks everyone um hope to see you guys all next week um and thanks again Bye. Bye.